some new eyepieces, a DIY tripod, and a question on optics on episode 317 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. And Shane, did you get out under the stars this week? No, I did not again. Uh, there was definitely some opportunity, but uh, it's just been fast and furious at work. And my energy at night has been quite low. And uh, my wife and I are going on vacation next week. So there's been a, a little extra effort needed every day to help prep for being away for a week. So no observing for me, but I think you did a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, the way it goes sometimes. But yeah, I teaching my astronomy class, which uh, in a way helps me to get out a little bit more than maybe I otherwise would. So on Wednesday, I was teaching my class and we had nice, beautiful, clear skies. And I was able to show everyone the Uranus and Venus pairing there. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Just in my 60 millimeter telescope. I forgot my one and a quarter inch adapter though. So I couldn't put any power on Venus. I was disappointed. Oh, that's too bad. Were you able to make out any colors of Uranus or any other features within uh, Venus? No, not at 10 power. Yeah. I wouldn't think so. Yeah. Nice wide field of view though. It was, you know, there's a couple dozen people in the class, so it's sort of a big lineup, unfortunately, when you just have the one scope set up. So it was nice just to kind of roll everybody through and have everybody put their eyes on Venus and Uranus and see two of those planets. And then uh, we had a nice look at the moon as well. And then a few people uh, hung out. One thing we did see just as I was moving the scope so we could look at the moon is the ISS did a beautiful, very high overhead pass and get exceptionally bright. Hmm, that's awesome. Uh, I like overhead passes of the ISS uh, because it it sometimes has or appears to have a little bit of a wobble to it as it traverses hmm. the sky. Were you able yeah. to to pick that out? Yeah, maybe a little bit. I was sort of futzing with my gear a bit and kind of was just casting my gaze up and back, but it went pretty much straight overhead. I think it was above the moon. The moon is very was very high on Wednesday night, so yeah, it was nice and high. We also uh, had a few stragglers hang out afterwards. We were just chatting. Um, I think three or four of us. And uh, so I said, Hey, I'll put it on uh, M42. So I was able to show them a little bit of the Orion Nebula, which you could just scarcely see through the 60 millimeter in a brightly lit parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, you do what you can, I guess, given the circumstances. Yeah. Are you going to get any observing in while you're away or is it just a strictly non-observing trip? I don't, yeah, it'll be basically a, a vacation. I'll I'll take some smaller binoculars, but no observing planned. Uh, I'm going to the west coast of Canada, Vancouver, um, and I don't believe there's anything unique or special about that location at that time uh -oh. for Never astronomy. Angry, angry letters from the people on the west coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose, but uh, maybe if I was going south or something like that, uh, I would make a, a I, I would definitely make a greater point of observing, but. Uh, for a trip like this, I think I'll just enjoy the uh, the relaxation and plan on doing some reading. So hopefully get into some astronomy that way. Cool. So we had a nice uh, email there from uh, Alejandro. Did you want to take take a read? Yeah, for sure. So uh, Alejandro says, uh, hi, Chris and Shane. Uh, I hope all is well. Uh, as I was listening to the latest episode about things to see in April while running some errands, uh, I looked at the time and realized it was just after sunset. So I thought, Mercury, 
Uh, I had to park for a few minutes to wait for something uh, when I realized I had a clear view of the west horizon. Uh, it took me a couple of minutes, but I was able to see Mercury, uh, orange and star-like. Uh, I looked at it for a good couple of minutes, and I think this uh, was the first time I ever saw Mercury. Very oh, nice. Very cool. Very cool. Someone was able to go out and take a look at it based on... Uh show <laughs> yeah yeah that's great that's a that's a really good observation and uh um like like you indicated chris i think on that show um mercury is kind of brighter than i think typical too so it, it you know it's, it's a really good opportunity for anybody to see it yeah so Alejandro goes on to say, uh, uh, new eyepieces. Uh, recently I have been looking for a good low power eyepiece for my eight inch daub, which is an Uptura AD8. Uh, I bought it used and it came with a two inch 28 millimeter deep view Orion eyepiece. Uh, the view is rather narrow at 56 degrees. Um, somebody recommended the GSO Superview 30 millimeter, which is 68 degrees. And while looking for it, I found, uh, SWA 38 millimeter by Agena Astro, which is 70 degrees. Uh, I was actually looking for either a 32 millimeter or 35 millimeter, but I decided for the 30 millimeter super view. And since the views, uh, sorry, since the reviews were so good about the SWA 38 millimeter, I got it to try it out. After a couple of weeks of rain in South Florida, uh, last night, it finally cleared up. Oh boy. I'm glad I got both. Clear and crisp views on both. Uh, I looked at M44, the beehive cluster. It was washed out by the moon, but it fit in the entire field of view. Uh, the 38 millimeter was outstanding and more comfortable. I didn't notice any bad coma or any bad toward the edge of the field of view. And lastly, uh, the moon to the end of the drive, or sorry, to the uh, to end the test drive session of the eyepieces, I looked at the moon. Again, clear, crisp views with both eyepieces. Uh, low power, of course, but I'm satisfied with my purchase. I'm sharing a few photos, uh, full disc with the 30 millimeter super view and close up of the Montez Apenninus, uh, serious, serious shadows in Copernicus and Clavius crater areas with my 10 millimeter aspheric eyepiece uh, by SV Boney, uh, which is great medium power and budget eyepiece. Uh, all images were taken, uh, with a polarizing filter on an iPhone 12 mini, uh, clear skies and thanks. Yeah, very cool. I like that image of the moon. Yeah, yeah. Um, really nice image of the moon. And sounds like he's found some good wide field eyepieces to use in that telescope. Yeah, Florida boy. You know, I had to, <laughs> had to put something in about Florida, Shane. Our weather has been so un-Florida-like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the coldness of winter is uh, carrying on longer than usual here. Although it sounds like we're, I think we're getting into some proper spring temperatures here soon. Oh, hopefully. Yeah. We've even been wake, waking up still, uh, except for the past few mornings. I mean, we've been waking up still into the minus twenties, um, right up until the very last days of March. And now, uh, today was actually the warmest day we woke up. It was minus seven this morning, which is getting more, uh, reasonable. And, and so hopefully we start seeing those temperatures above zero because we haven't had many of those either. But yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Alejandro's uh, message. I think those are some great uh, getting started wide field, low power eyepieces. So really neat that he's been able to enjoy those. And I sure wish I was down there enjoying some warm weather in Florida. I don't know about you, Shane. <laughs> yeah, one can dream. Uh, our time will come, but uh, yeah, it is great to to hear about some folks getting out and you know being able to do some nice observing. We also had an email from... Uh, 
Leonid, and he is in Montreal, which is a beautiful spot. A little bit light polluted, though, unfortunately. So Leonid writes, hi, Chris and Shane. As I said before, I really enjoy your podcast as it helped me transition to smaller refractors. We're always help. We're always happy to enable people to to see the smaller side of life, eh? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if anybody has money that is unspent and burning a hole in their pocket, we're happy to help you spend it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Then it goes on to write, part of me wants to write almost a whole essay on how I got back into the hobby after 40, after 40 years hiatus and how I built my tripod and so on. I realized early on that it can be quite expensive. In order for it to work, uh, especially to increase the pleasing views um, using all types of equipment. So when he got back into the hobby, he says, I got into the hobby w- with an Astromaster 90 EQ as I wanted to try out this kind of setup. And yes, being quite a bit older, I wanted to relearn the sky the good old fashioned way. Montreal skies being what they are, my location is such somewhat sometimes make it very difficult, but I keep trying. Because this telescope is quite long at f11, which is almost four feet long, I had to first solve the issue on how to get it higher. Because you know, on the standard tripod that those come with, it's very low. And he sent us a photo of that. Mm-hmm. The other issue was the mount, which was an EQ3, and it had a very short dovetail, all of which were not conducive to proper balancing of the telescope, and it was giving it a lot of shake. So his solution was to build a new tripod put the scope on rings and buy a new mount, which wouldn't cost me an arm and a leg. He goes on to say, at 40, I had decided to become a cabinet maker. So in a way, I am blessed with being handy. And in many ways, that has helped me out a lot in this hobby. So there you have it. My original Astromaster I sold to my friend in Toronto, who I had no idea was also interested in astronomy. I have a 24 millimeter panoptic, 13 millimeter Nagler, 10 millimeter Pentax and a 2.5 X power mate. I also have an eight inch Skywatcher job. That's a really beautiful selection of eyepieces and a Barlow. Yeah, it, it is. It, it gives uh, pretty much the entire spectrum of focal lengths that you'd want. And did you check out the photos of the wooden tripod you made? Incredible. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Chris, if you remember, this would have been, I think much earlier in our podcasting days, probably year one. Uh, I, this was before I bought the Burlaback uni, uh, tripod. I was considering making my own or at least making my own legs as, uh, Leonid did here. Um, and I'm, I'm really fascinated with this. I, I think it's, well, first of all, they look great and what a way to improve the performance of a tripod, you know, especially some of these. Uh, tripods that come, uh, you know, with the aluminum legs, they can be a little rickety at times and just swapping that out for wood, uh, I assume makes a huge difference on that one. Yeah. So in this, uh, in this, this email, we're not going to read every last word, but he, he went on to explain, uh, that he's gone to a CG four Celestron mount, which is a white mount. He now has, uh, Zenith star 81 millimeter with the gold trim and gold rings. And then he took the mount and the um, hub from that mount and attached it to this beautiful tripod. Shane, I remember somebody used to build these sort of tripods and just always have one up for sale on cloudy nights. Do you remember that? And the, the person actually had like a bit of a side hustle just selling uh, these tripods for uh, uh, 100 or 150 bucks or something. 
Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. And I think that there definitely would be a, a market for this. Oh, yeah. um, and, and maybe, you know, I don't know, Chris, if we've ever really explained why wood is desirable on a tripod. So maybe let's just take a minute on that. I would um, love to hear it, Shane. Yeah, so there's there's two benefits in my mind. Um, one is they're heavier than aluminum. And, you know, that may sound counterintuitive, but having uh, more weight in your tripod uh, does bring more stability. Uh, it just creates a, a firmer footing for your mount and telescope. So that is one benefit. And then the other is um, wood is far better at vibration dampening uh, than aluminum. So um, typically, you know, wood uh, will be a little bit better. Um, now, with that being said, there's some outstanding aluminum metal mounts out, or sorry, tripods out there uh, that work great. But, you know, again, some of these uh, lighter, I don't know, I guess lighter weight versions or, or just lighter weight tripod legs made of aluminum, typically uh, you'll notice a, a pretty substantial performance increase with wooden legs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a couple of things that he's done, which are quite nice is, well, first of all, you can make the tripod to the height that, that works best for you, depending on your mount. He's got this little... Um, EQ mount. This CG4 is a beautiful little mount. I know a couple other people who have this great little mount and then he's got a refractor. So he wants it to sit up nice and high. Perhaps he's somebody who likes to stand while observing. And then as well, he can actually lower it down if, if he gets an observing chair, or I feel like perhaps he's going to build his own observing chair. I would recommend that. But a couple other nice things that he's done, I, I can see a lot of attention to detail. I really like the way he has his eyepiece tray sitting mm -hmm. in the hub. And uh, he's got some nice little walls so that his eyepieces and such won't roll off. And uh, typically you don't see that uh, as much. Just a really beautiful job, uh, uh, Leonid. Yeah, yeah. It's really nice craftsmanship. Did he mention what kind of wood he used? I don't know if he did. Um, didn't, to me, it looks, and I don't know much about wood. To me, it looks like maple or something or maybe cherry. I, I don't know. It's sort of like a honey colored very nice, but I think he could, I think he could get a side business going, selling these tripods for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the neat thing with tripod legs is they're often quite easy to exchange out. You know, there's typically one bolt that you would remove to free the existing leg, and then you just put the bolt back in with the new wooden leg. So there's not a lot to it. Yeah. So Shane, he also had a question here and, uh, what I'm going to do is just sort of transition to the part where you ask the question. Sure. Um, Leonard goes on to write, my question is, I only recently received my 81 millimeter Xeon star from William Optics. And for the life of me, we have had few clear nights and uh, for all of which the seeing was absolutely crappy. So sounds kind of familiar, right? Mm, yeah, I can relate. <laughs> so much so that I could not do a proper star test on the telescope. Mm. And he has a Behitnoff map mask and says the uh, Behitnoff mask told me that I was in focus on Ceres, Betelgeuse, etc., but no classic focus was possible. No refraction rings. Everything just kept swimming in front of my eyes. Dimmer objects were excellent, and after full acclimation to the cold and humidity at minus twenty, which Oof. we can sympathize with, yep. and yes, it can be very damp over here. The diffraction spikes disappeared. Is that normal? As I have never really noticed that before. So I'm not sure. So diffraction spikes usually are from the reflector. 
I'm thinking um, he's talking about just the fact that the uh, diffraction rings just aren't showing. So when you take a refractor just slightly out of focus, you can get a good indication of the optical quality by just checking out the rings. And typically what those rings look like, Shane, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but to my eye, they kind of sort of look like if you slice an onion in two and you have a bit of a center and then you have these uh, very concentric rings on both sides of focus and you sort of get uh, juxtaposed rings on either side of focus. Is that kind of a good way to put it? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think that's great, Chris. Um, I sometimes refer to it as a bullseye. Um, you, you know, you have like a, a middle a solid marker that's a circle and then you have concentric rings around it as you rack focus in and out mm -hmm. um, and this will help determine the quality of your optics in the telescope so we also go oh, sorry chris i was just also going to add or your collimation which is sort of uh you know in line with the optic quality yeah he goes on to say, I also have noticed that if there is any upper level cloud abnormalities, I notice them much more in the telescope. Uh, is that also normal in an apo as I have no way of looking? I'm just going to hit on that really quick. I think that perhaps what you might be noticing is the fact that this telescope is going to have um, a very different wide field of view, as well as perhaps a... Uh, a different color spectrum. So it's just going to pass slightly different color than maybe he's used to with like the re reflector, because with an eight inch reflector, you're going to see color a little bit different because it's just pulling in more light. And then um, sometimes the, there can be a little bit of a color shift just because with a refractor and those type of optics versus a reflector and the silvered mirror and those type of optics, there can be a little difference in the color that people are used to. And people that are really used to reflectors and they come over and look at my scope, sometimes they will notice this. I personally haven't noticed that as much. I don't know if you've noticed that as well. Uh, yeah, I don't think that that really stands out too much for me. Um, yeah, no, I don't think I've really no noticed that. Um, may maybe just to quickly circle back to the star testing though, Chris, um, just a couple more comments. Um, uh, you know, I recommend using a, a star, not like, like, Betelgeuse is probably not a great star for that because of how much it twinkles. Mm. Uh, you certainly want a, a you know a moderately bright star, but one that is probably higher up in the sky with less twinkle or less variability. Mm. Um, you typically want to use a higher powered eyepiece too, uh, yep. probably around a hundred times or more uh, magnification is what you'd like. Um, and then you can begin your star test. Now, the interpretation of a star test can get pretty com complex because there's a lot of different results you can get from a star test. And uh, a book that we've recommended in the past is uh, Star Testing Astronomical Telescopes. Um, By Harold think, Richard Souter. Yes, that is uh, the author. Thanks for that, Chris. And you can, um, I was going to say, you can get it on Sky and Telescope has it back in stock because they bought out the stock from Wilman Bell and are continuing to produce it. And it's a $35.95 American from Sky and Tell uh, shop at Sky Shop. Yeah, great. Thanks for that. Uh, I, I believe, you know, that this is almost a must own book for any amateur astronomer, uh, particularly if you're buying and selling telescopes, because it helps you evaluate whether or not uh, the optics uh, that you think you're getting are indeed what you got. <laughs> so, so it's, it's a wonderful book to explain the various, you know, mysteries or outcomes of star testing and, and how you do that with a telescope. Yeah, that's it. That's a great guide. I was going to recommend that as well. Um, 
And I, I think as well, it's important to remember that as long as you're seeing things well. So he goes on to say, I have never been able to see the Leo triplet in, Mon- in Montreal, but with the William Optic scope, the 70 or the 81 uh, millimeter Zenith star, I believe that I am able to see a whisper of their existence. So this tells me that the telescope is probably a, a pretty good little telescope, mm-hmm. uh, even though it seems like the uh, star test is in- inconclusive at the current time. Yeah, yeah, the Leo triplet is is a fantastic set of galaxies, but it's it's not an easy target in an urban center, particularly a larger one like Montreal. So uh, to even tease out the appearance of the Leo triplet with an 80 millimeter, I think is quite a feat. Yeah, he goes on to say, I took your advice and picked up a copy of Touring the Universe through binoculars. And after a bit of thought, uh, after Chris's suggestion, I think I will look at getting the 30 millimeter UFF. So that's that's your IP, Shane. I think uh, I was talking to uh, to him about IP selections and having having looked through that eyepiece of yours. I think that would be a good uh, low power eyepiece for an 81 millimeter scope. It's a wonderful eyepiece. Uh, very comfortable to look through. Eye relief is excellent. It is as advertised in terms of being flat, uh, stars are pinpoints to the edge. Um, if they're not, then there's some aberrations in the telescope or some other place in the optical train. Uh, it's somewhat, uh, you know, relatively well-priced compared to some other wide fields. And it's also relatively light, uh, particularly compared to the 31 millimeter Nagler. I own both. And since I got the APM 30 millimeter UFF, I don't think I've used the Nagler. <laughs> yeah. It's just so heavy. I, I, you know, I struggle to, to, you know, enjoy the usage of that eyepiece. And with a smaller telescope, the 81 millimeter, uh, weight and balance issues are a real thing. So, you know, using a lighter eyepiece uh, like the APM, uh, yeah, I highly recommend that. He goes on to say, thank you for your time and consideration, especially for your excellent podcast, which I find to be really helpful for me. You touch on subjects which I think are really helpful to us beginner astronomers. In many ways, I think that this is a difficult hobby to find yourself in, as there is so much to learn, much to accept, like light pollution, for example, and everything else. Thanks for everything, Leonard. Uh, Thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, the email. Love that tripod. I think that's spectacular, eh? Yeah, yeah. I really, really like it. Great job on that. Uh, not only does it look great, but it looks like it will function great as well, which is really the the outcome you want. So, uh, yeah, really nice job. And I think as well, the um, the star test, you know, sometimes people can get really caught up in star testing. I did for a while, certainly. And I think it's a valuable skill to have to star test a telescope. I remember there was an observer at the KW Waterloo Center of the RASC. And he had a stellar view telescope. And I remember he was wondering, he he always thought things were off a little bit with that telescope. And I remember I went over and star tested it. And right away, I could see that something was um, pinching the optics. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is what's happening with Leonard's scope, by the way. But this uh, stellar view had slightly pinched optics. You could clearly see it was making a bit of a trial. You could just see there was a lot of pressure there. So I said, hmm, this seems really unusual because stellar view makes pretty good little scopes or you know, has, has pretty good little scopes made for them. And 
what they end up doing, uh, as per my recommendation, is just send StellarView a note saying, hey, this is what we noticed in a star test, and do you have any advice? And so I should put the caveat in that, first of all, this person had bought the telescope used from another uh, person who never really used the scope very much or was given it as a gift or something. It was one of the old uh, 8090s or something like that. So it was, uh, I think it was either a 90 millimeter F9 or F8 or an 80 millimeter F9. It was something like that. Anyhow, what it ended up being, Shane, was when they sh- when they shipped those Stellar View refractors, if they were going a long distance, they would um, tighten the cell down a little bit so that things wouldn't fall out of alignment. And uh-huh. then when it came, they came with instructions on how to back the screws off. The original owner had never done that and had simply just sort of passed the telescope on down the line without ever following the instructions Stellar View had given with the instrument. Oh, that's interesting. So uh, I assumed backing off some of these uh, tension screws fixed the problem? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. I mean, beautiful optics. Um, They were acromats, I believe, not 100% color-free, but the figure on it was just absolutely brilliant. And that's one of the things that I've learned with telescopes is that telescopes can be color-free, but just because they're not color-free doesn't mean they can't have beautifully figured optics. And many times, like I remember observing with uh, Ron Ravenberg on a couple of occasions, he had these beautiful old refractors. Like I think one of them was like a four-inch F12 that's uh, sort of very famously photographed in a lot of different uh, books and that. And and the star test on that was brilliant, but you could still see like a small hint of color. I've seen some other telescopes that are beautifully figured uh, acromats, and it just it it just means that the telescope is going to give really beautiful images. They still might have a little bit of color to them, though. So I don't think people should be as concerned. I know, for example, one of the scopes that can get a little bit of heat is my little Takahashi FS60, which has a beautifully figured set of optics, but it's only f5.9. And at 60 millimeters, you will, no matter what glass you use in a doublet, still get a little bit of color. So don't worry about that. Going back to uh, his question, though, for this telescope, I think probably, yeah, doing a good star test, but sometimes with these telescopes, Shane, I think that they can uh, have very good color correction, and so he should uh, see very little color on the planets, if if any. I think typically they tend to be truly apochromatic. You've had a couple of the Zenith stars over the years, I think, coming in. Uh, well, I had one, uh, I had the Zenith star two 80 millimeter, um, many years ago, and it was a wonderful three inch telescope. Like I, I've, I looked at the planets. I looked at a number of deep sky objects with it. I, I, it got a fair amount of use and I don't recall any false color on Jupiter. I don't know. I can't remember Venus, but no false color on Jupiter or the moon that, that I can recall. Should be pretty good. So I'd be surprised if it didn't have a fairly decent uh, star test as well. Mm-hmm. And I think you just need to to wait for the right night. I liked your advice on finding a star that's higher up, maybe um, something like Capella or even trying, um, you know, maybe one of the stars in the, in the Big Dipper, if you can get a good view to the north. I know under the light pollution of Montreal, it, it can be a little tough to find uh, something of that nature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, this is just going to be a a slightly shorter episode because 
you're uh, heading off on vacation. We're just trying to make sure that we uh, provide another show for for this week. And maybe once uh, once you're back from your trip, we're going to have a nice uh, conversation with Justin and get that show out. And then hopefully soon after that, we'll be back into some warm weather and maybe uh, be able to live out the dream of getting together and doing an observing session that we record with the lapel mics that you picked up. I'm really excited to do that. Yeah, me too. I hope we, well, we definitely will make that happen. It's just a matter of timing and, and, uh, good weather. Yeah, hopefully. And I guess this show is probably going to land fairly close to our three-year anniversary, which is going to be on April 19th. I was, I was going through it. I'm not sure exactly where we are. We've done a few back shows, Shane, but, um, I think the, this show is going to land on about the 17th of uh, April. So, That'll be uh, pretty much three years to the day from when we launched the first four episodes because we put four episodes out the first time. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, it uh, it went by fast. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, we have some exciting things coming up. I, I don't think we can really talk as much about one of them yet because we're waiting for uh, for our partner there to, uh, to make her own announcement. So anyway, looking forward to some new stuff uh, coming up on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. All right. Anything else to add to this one of our shorter episodes? No, that's it, Chris. Thank you. Yeah. Really appreciate everybody for listening. Really appreciate the emails we get from folks. And uh, if you're a listener, you can do us a solid favor and share the show with the other stargazers you know on your social media, send an email to a friend or put a post up on your club's forum. We appreciate it as the more we grow the show, the better it's going to be. Thanks for listening, and you can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. 